HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Our show today is being produced by Jack Inslee, engineered by Nat Wiener, and sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with an extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding land. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. Thank you, Hearst Ranch. Um, But we are not talking beef today. We are talking cheese, the other end of the cow farm spectrum. Um, And this episode of Cutting the Curd is dedicated to the state of cheese in Virginia. I'm going to be joined by Helen Feet of Meadow Creek Dairy to talk about uh, Meadow Creek Dairy, their cheese, and what's going on with cheese in the state of Virginia. Uh, Are you with us, Helen? I am, Anne. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be with you. Great to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show. All right. Um, so I was wondering if we could get started um, just by talking a little bit about, uh, about your farm. Where is Meadow Creek Dairy located? We are in extreme southwestern Virginia, right up against the North Carolina line. We're right above Mount Airy, North Carolina, only a mile out. And we are in the Appalachian Mountains in the mountainous area. Right, on the, right off of the Blue Ridge Parkway, isn't that right? Right, just a, little, just a few miles off the Blue Ridge Parkway. One of the most beautiful roads I've ever driven on. That is really just a, a superb, I don't know, a superb road trip. <laughs> it is. It's the ultimate. Uh, how, how far does that uh, parkway stretch? Um, I believe that it starts in the most southern part of North Carolina, might possibly go into South Carolina a little bit, all the way to the top of Virginia. Wow, wow. Um, And uh, how long have you guys had your farm there? We have been in Grayson County since um, 1987. We've been on this farm, which is just outside of Galax, since 92. And uh, what made you guys choose to to start your farm in that part of the world? (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> actually, it was old-time music. <laughs> when we, um, we were working on a dairy farm up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, just in the Shenandoah Valley. And when we would go on vacation, we would go to play music. And we came down here because this is pretty much the center of that tradition. And we started looking at land while we came down here and fell in love with it. Wow. Now, now tell me, so you and your husband, Rick, um, both play music, isn't that right? Past tense, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what do you play, or what did you play? I played claw hammer banjo, and he has played guitar forever. That is so awesome. I love. We, we just had the Fiddler's Convention last week, the great big one. Oh, wow. So what? Uh, tell us about that. What's the Fiddler's Convention all about? Well, it's both old-time and bluegrass music. Old-time is kind of the precursor for bluegrass, and in these mountains is really where that music started in Virginia and North Carolina. And, and so it's, it's the largest one in the world. Wow. I have, I have said I'm going to make it down there one of these years for that yeah, festival because it just, I know I've got to up the ante. This year, I, I don't know, with the American Cheese Society right around the corner, I had to, ah, that was my big trip, or that is going to be my big trip for August, but, um, but that just sounds great. Now, what is the, what's the heritage of, of um, old time and bluegrass music? Because doesn't a lot of it come from um, Northern Europe, um, Scotland and, and Ireland and, and, the people who kind of originally settled that part of Virginia? Yes, certainly a lot of it is uh, based in Scottish and Irish folk traditions, but also, especially with the banjo, some of it came from Africa. Wow. wow. That's where that claw hammer, because it's a real syncopated sound, that's mm-hmm. where that came from. The slaves brought it with them. Now, I remember w- one time uh, when we were talking, um, you talking about teaching yourself how to play the banjo and teaching yourself how to um, do the, is it clog dancing, the traditional uh, dancing? Flat foot dancing. Well, I've done both clogging and flat foot, but flat foot is the dancing that they do in this area. And, and well, my, I guess my segue is sort of, I, I feel like those are both very difficult things to learn, and cheese making is also a very difficult thing to learn. So I was wondering if you think that there are any parallels between teaching yourself to do these three disparate but very difficult things? (laughs) Uh, What they had in common for me was that Rick told me I couldn't do any of them. (laughs) 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 I think that you have to be willing to fail and make a fool of yourself. That helps. (laughs) Absolutely. I think we all need to do more of that in our lives. It serves you well. (laughs) Otherwise, you can't keep learning, you know, if you already know how to do everything. Um, Wow. So, so, okay, so you're in uh, southwestern Virginia. Um, is that area traditionally uh, a dairy area, or were you guys kind of unique? Well, it, is, it definitely has a tradition of small dairies. I wouldn't say that there is a cheese-making tradition here, but there was always, especially through the, up through the 60s and early 70s, a lot of 5 and 10 cow grade B, which is manufactured milk dairies, and so... All the milk that was produced here was going into cheese or butter or a manufactured product. And then there were small processing plants, you know, in all the major towns in the county. We had a seal test. We had a craft plant in Independence. And that's kind of drifted out and gone. But that, in, that tradition of independence and self-sufficiency, which I think this area is known for, I think, showed through in the dairy, dairies that were here. Absolutely. And so what was the distribution like? Or do, do you uh, feel like you could comment on that, how the, the milk got from those small dairies to those processing plants? Um, and does that still exist? 
Well, true to, you know, back when they did a lot of skimming and sold cream, they would pick up cans of milk from the grade B dairies. It doesn't have to be picked up as often with grade B milk. It can be picked up every three days instead of every other day. And then they were just run to the small towns, which were not far away, so you didn't really have refrigeration issues, and processed right there. Now, just like most of the country, our milk goes not real far, but several hours away, and it's all fluid milk, and that tradition's pretty much gone. That's very, very interesting. And so you guys, um, how did you decide to um, turn to the, the world of cheese from the world of dairy? Well, I'd always had a real food interest and food passion probably since I got married. When I first got married, I couldn't cook at all. And so... um, I don't believe that. I I was at your house. Horrible. You can ask Rick. I was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned to cook, and I'd always... My parents had always had a garden, so I had a little bit of background there. But we came through in that time in the 70s and 80s when self-sufficiency was a big deal. And so that was certainly something in our background but we, um, we learned as we finally got our dairy going, I wanted to make cheese pretty much from the beginning, but we decided trying to get two businesses going at the same time was just too much. And just learning, yeah, learning the ropes to you right. know, animal health and milking the cows and what that all entails. That's, that's a huge learning curve in and of itself. It was. And so we, we milked for ourselves, had our own dairy for 10 years before I started cheese making. And then we decided maybe we were ready to stick our toes in that. <laughs> In, into the cheese vat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not really people. Yeah, no, no, no. That never happens, ever. <laughs> the, only jokes. <laughs> Um, I remember actually somebody um, back in the day when I was working at Murray's making jokes about people taking baths in the in the way tank at one of the farms and because uh, it was some sort of a hippie commune and I was like oh geez and that absolutely never happens but it's always fun to joke about. Um, so what cheese did you start with and how did how have you kind of developed your your cheeses since the the beginning? Well, I started with Appalachian and. Actually, it started out in a jack style because I had gone to California to Cal Poly and taken a short course there. And so I wanted to start with something I had at least seen. But what we did with the Appalachian across the years and really was the goal at the beginning was to use that cheese to show off our milk. And so it has gone through many changes. I think it's close to its home now. But um, it went through quite a bit finding its, its niche, I think, with our with our cows, our climate, our topography. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about American farmstead cheese in general is that people generally have started with an idea of a cheese that's a that's kind of a facsimile of something else. And then over the years, it just develops into being its own unique creature um, that is completely expressive of just the one farm that it comes from. I think, I think that's true. And I think the longer that you have, as long as you don't keep flying around, the, the better you can tailor it to your farm. Uh, probably in the early 2000s, somewhere in there, we started going to Europe, which we really couldn't do before then because my kids were too young to leave. And we chose to study cheeses in areas that were similar to our climate and topography. So we went to the Savoie, we went to Valdosta, and we studied those cheeses. And the terrain is somewhat similar as well. And so we tried to bring some of that to bear on our cheeses in both the cheese making and the affinage and also even some of the cattle genetics. And how did you um, initially find those, uh, those people, those cheesemakers that you went to uh, study with? Well, on our first trip, we actually went 
through the farming end. And so we had some contacts through um, some of the genetics that we had been importing into this country, and we visited those farms, talked to those farmers about the cows, and then they would take us to their local creamery right there in the town because in France every little village has a creamery. Absolutely. And so, you know, we saw Beaufort and we saw Abondance and some of those cheeses being made and and the and the cows and the pastures and we realized from as much as we'd done with pastures how much they were similar in France. We had a lot in common. And so then I began thinking that the affinage they were using there was going to work here and, you know, under our conditions. And I think that, that that did a lot. You bring that tradition, but you fit it to your, your area. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, can we talk a little bit about Grayson? Because that's sure. the cheese that's the namesake of, of you know your county. And also, I just feel like a beautiful kind of melding of a couple different cheese traditions. Um, so, yeah, tell us about how Grayson became. Well, it started, let's see, I think we went to Ireland in 2000, right. And so I'd been making cheese for two years. And I had been making the Mountaineer. I had just been playing around with that and the Appalachian. And we went to visit Jeffa Gill at Duras Cheese, and I just fell in love with her cheese and that cheese. And I'd always kind of had washed rind in the back of my mind, but wasn't quite brave enough to take it on yet. And then once again, Rick told me I couldn't make a washed rind cheese. And so <laughs> there we went. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went back. I mean, that, the, the, one, the cheese that Jeffa made was my first model. And then I went back and, you know, I considered the Taleggio and quite a few of the French cheeses and the Rébonchon and um, some of the different washed rinds up in, in France. And we just kind of took the best of everything that we liked there and figured out what we could do with aging since we had to take it out to the 60 days, which is a little bit longer than a lot of those cheeses are done. Because of the raw milk laws in this country. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's a little difficult when you're aging a cheese that has a life because you, you're trying to hit a good target and where it'll last in the marketplace, but it still needs to truly age or it's not going to have flavor. Absolutely. And so over the course of, um, gosh, what is this now, 11 years? Um, 12. <laughs> 12 years. Grayson is, I, I mean, didn't you guys take second place last year at the American Cheese Society? We did. Last year we had second place in Wash Rind. Congratulations. So, thank you. It it's come a long way and it ended up being a cheese. Some of it was some of it was luck of the draw. It ended up being a cheese that just really suited our milk. It all came together. But it took five or six years of making before we really became mainstream in the market. That is a that's a yeah, you gotta have a long term vision. Well I guess if you're gonna have a farm you gotta have a long term vision anyways. So Yeah, just, you don't have much choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it seems like we're just about halfway through, um, so maybe we'll take a very quick break. But when we come back, um, continue talking about the farm and about what else is going on in Derry in Virginia. Stay okay, with us. Okay, great. One day in early spring, you held a piper in your hand to mend its broken wing. Now I'll remember many a day And many a lonely mile The echo of a piper's song The shadow of a smile 
The shadow of your smile. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and I'm joined today by Helen Feet of Meadow Creek Dairy in Galax, Virginia. Um, so, Helen, we were talking a little bit about Grayson and how tricky it is to get that cheese, you know, just right and to get it to age out to its full, you know, its full aging period of 60 days. Um, I've been asking everybody, um, all the cheesemakers I've been talking to recently about um, raw milk and what, uh, how that's perceived by your state and what that means for you as a farmstead cheesemaker. And um, I guess we can start about how it's perceived by your state and your inspectors and, and how, how, what kind of a relationship do you guys have? Well, we actually have a really good relationship with our inspectors. They have been on board with us since the beginning. We started bringing them in before we built the first cheese plant. There was always reluctance and, you know, not a full understanding of what the raw milk meant. But they have been good in working with us. And when I've, you know, tried to explain things that could be different within the regulations, they've been pretty open to it. That's interesting. So have you actually managed to um, to change anything uh, regulation-wise that uh, initially they were like, oh, you can't do that, and now, and now you're allowed to? Yeah, there was quite a few things. Because I'm, <laughs> in this state, I'm one of the bigger, I'm the biggest raw milk cheese producer, and one of the bigger producers just because Virginia doesn't have a lot. Um, they were good. We went through a lot of different things with testing and, you know, testing levels, bacterial levels, you know, how it would be different in a pasteurized and a raw milk cheese, and some things that were appropriate in one and not the other. And, and in the long run, while at times we didn't agree, we've come to pretty decent regulations, I think. Well, that's, that's really good news. Um, and so do you see other people uh, in Virginia maybe starting to follow your lead a little bit? Is there any, um, I don't know, do you see that happening at all? Or are you guys kind of the, the exception to the rule? Well, there's, there's always been a handful, you know, a dozen or so, and probably half of them are raw milk. They seem to come and go. I wouldn't say there's, you know, like a lot of new people coming in, but there's a, there's a constant little patter of it, which is good. And I would hope that we would get more. It's one of the few things that we can really pick up on with dairy in this state. I think it's not a state that's going to be easy to compete with large dairies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's see. So what about distribution and, and, and markets? How do you guys deal with, uh, with that issue, being in, a, in an area that's a little bit further away from, say, you know, New York City or Boston or Atlanta? Um, I was just talking with Mark Gilman from Cato Corner Farm on our last show, and he was talking about the, the green market system here being such a big um, help for their farm. But you guys must deal with that in a different way. Right. We don't really have access to those types of markets. They're all too far away. They would all involve two, three-hour drives and being away from the farm all day long, and they're still nowhere near as big as the markets you would have in New York City. And so we, after oh, the first four or five years, put most of our attention into going wholesale. And because we have not unlimited milk, but quite a bit of milk, it is easier for us to focus on putting more milk into cheese rather than going for that higher-end retail market. Absolutely. Um, and so what do you guys, uh, I mean, but with a perishable or with, you know, any perishable product, but especially a soft cheese like Grayson that has to have posed some interesting issues over the years. 
Yeah, we've had to really work on our packaging, which I think is, is a good thing. Um, we've actually had fairly good luck with UPS. We try and keep everything within a two-day range, always in the summer two-day range, and we can get a long ways two-day ground even. We pack with ice. We tested various containers to see what was the most efficient with um, keeping it cold. And we have the occasional breakdown, but overall it's done well. And as we've gotten bigger, we have a few distributors who actually will pick up at the farm, which is much easier. Getting an, getting a big truck up your driveway must be an interesting <laughs> experience. We don't tell them until they get here. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Rick's instructions for me when I came to visit about um, you know small rental cars and keeping the keeping <laughs> one tire on the crown of the road. And I was like, uh oh, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> Yeah, well, some of the truck drivers definitely think that, but, you know, it's good for them. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. It it can be a little bit more of a challenge, but even though we're in the south, our climate is pretty forgiving. We are a lot cooler than our lowland neighbors, even 10 miles from here. And so, at least from the farm and when we leave the farm, we don't have as much heat to battle as even you do in New York City, even though we're further south. That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, you were talking a little bit before about the terrain of your farm being similar to some of the mountainous regions in, um, in Europe. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the lay of the land uh, at Meadow Creek? Well, we sit at about 2,800 feet. We have quite a few steep hills. Uh, we keep all of the grass as perennial grasses. We don't till the soil because there would just be too much erosion. And grazing is what is really suited to this area and can really take advantage of, of these soils here. The Appalachian Mountains are one of the oldest mountain chains, and the soils here are old and deep and rich. And so I think that we, what we lose in having land that is a little difficult to fence and deal with, we gain back in you know, the quality of our soil and, and the pastures and the climate that we can have. And, um, and you guys are a strictly seasonal dairy. Um, so how does, how does that season work for you guys? Uh, when do you get started, and, and when does it wrap up for you? Well, we start calving in March, and so all the cows will have their calves between about the 10th of March and maybe the 1st of May. And I start making cheese early April. Um, this allows us to have the cows on pasture or we can almost always go on pasture by April. I don't start making cheese until they are. And this allows us to have the cows at their peak nutritional need when we have the most grass. And so then I make cheese up until about the first week of December, and we can, we can keep pasture that long. Occasionally we have to supplement with hay, but we always have some grass. I have had to work in the marketplace. It isn't absolutely the best situation for selling cheese and for making people to understand it. But the dairy was seasonal long before the cheese, and we truly believe that that is the best way, this nine-month season that we do. And so we have just worked to make the cheese marketing fit. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, just like uh, we were talking about American farmstead cheeses becoming their own, you know, their own individual elements, uh, you know, on each farm, I think part of that is also the education that comes along with selling a product that is seasonal and, and, and changes throughout the year. I personally, I really look forward to the changes in, in Grayson or in the changes in a cheese like Pleasant Ridge Reserve as the year goes by and to see how the flavor is different um, and, and really celebrate that. Well, and it's really good. So many of, of the shops have begun to pick up and understand that and they're getting that out there for us to the customer it is a challenge 
as a cheesemaker, there aren't a lot of us that deal with seasonal milk, and it can be very difficult at times. But we're just coming into fall milk, so we're about to make the change over here. Well, we've got a couple minutes left, and I wanted to ask, um, are there any, uh, you know, just talking about Virginia and Southern cheese, um, I know that you guys are part of the Raw Milk uh, Consortium, or we're part of the Raw Milk Consortium for Slow Food. Um, Are there any organizations or groups that that you guys, uh, that are supportive of cheesemakers or that people could go to learn more about Virginia cheese or Southern cheese? There is a Southern Cheesemakers Guild that I have been in and out of, and I know, you know, a fair amount of the people there. We don't have anything specifically in Virginia. And I think that is one of the hard things, probably in other parts of the country, but what I'm familiar with in the South is that we're kind of spread out, and it's hard to get a support network going. But we all know each other and do call each other up and see what, <laughs> see what problems we're all getting up against. Maybe you guys could start a, another festival that, that goes at the same time as the Fiddler's Convention and get all the cheesemakers down there and teach them to dance and then, you know, exchange uh, cheesemaking info. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, can you tell us, um, I guess, a little bit about, uh, are you still actively involved with the Slow Food Raw Milk Consortium? I am pretty much on the sidelines of that right now. I just needed to take a break. Our farm is still growing, and I'm still <laughs> still trying to get it under control. So I took a, a short break from that to get a little more control here, but we'll probably be involved again. Absolutely. Well, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about what that group d- did and does and what their goals are, because I think with raw milk cheeses in the U.S. in an increasingly sort of combative uh, environment with um, food products and regulation, it's really important for people to be taking steps like you guys did. Well, we were just basically trying to get, you know, a, a grassroots organization where we had a place, like I said, to bounce off each other, to get help, you know, to, to pool resources, to, to get people like Catherine Donnelly on our side to help us when we had problems, and, um, and to be ready to fight for the right if we needed to for raw milk cheeses. Now, so far, we've, we've done okay. It could still happen. But um, when Slow Food first set up this presidium, it was very different than what they do in Italy because those are always regional, and this is national. But the goal was to protect the right to make raw milk cheese. Well, it's good to know that it's out there. And it's good to know that, uh, yeah, you guys are all working to, I feel like raw milk cheesemakers are consistently ahead of the game when it comes to anything related to, uh, you know, quality and integrity of production. So look forward to see what happens with that in the future. Um, but another question that I wanted to ask, which is always kind of on my mind, is um, what about uh, the issue of succession with your farm? Um, I know that your kids uh, work with you guys on the farm. Um, what do you guys feel about taking your, your cheeses into the next generation and what will happen with your farm further on down the line? Well, I hope that our business is as sustainable as we have tried to make our farm environmentally, that's always been part of our goal, is that the business would live on and the cheeses would be representative of the farm and not just of one person. Uh, my daughter, Kat, now makes cheese with me. She's a great cheesemaker. She's very involved. And my son, Jim, is the farm manager. But uh, above and beyond our kids, we bring a lot of young people in. We do uh, a lot of interns. We have two interns here now from Thailand. We've had 
quite a few from Central America. So we, we try and stay fairly active in teaching and in bringing young people in. And I think as long as you do that, then you can find someone to, to carry on the business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, wow. Interns from Thailand. That is so cool. I haven't, I, I mean, it's just that that's not an area that has much of a dairy culture. Um, no, do you think you could spawn some, some cheese making operations in Thailand? <laughs> well, actually, one of the girls, they were both veterinary students. And um, one of them was actually offered a job when she goes back at her college to try and, and help teach in the rural areas uh, goat's milk or small, very small production, more, you know, just subsidence kind of production. And so we felt real good about that because when she came over here, it was just for livestock experience, but we put all our interns through both sets. And we also have an intern. We, we take interns on and off from different cheese shops. And so we currently have an intern who came to us from a cheese shop. We have Adrian who came to us from a cheese shop in Louisiana. And she just took her love of selling cheese and wanted to have the background of how to make it. That is fantastic. Well, I feel like the more, um, the more education that happens, the better, because that means more, more good cheese in every corner. <laughs> and and every, more understanding, and yes, I think so too. And more, like, like we were talking about in the beginning of the show, um, s- sort of self-sufficiency for small farms, which is really the, the most important thing. Um, well, if uh, we're almost out of time, but if people want to learn more about Meadow Creek Dairy, what is the best way? Do you guys have a, a website, or um, what, how, how do people find out about you guys? They're welcome to go to our website, which is meadowcreekdairy.com. We, at this point in time, are just selling wholesale, but we do have lists of shops in all areas where the cheese can be found, and we're glad to answer any questions over email. And as far as internships go, is that something that uh, that people can get in touch with you about as well? Are you are you open to, to taking interns from other walks of life, or is, uh, is do you stick more to having people from cheese shops and, and like you said, your international interns? We pretty much just consider people as they send us information. You know, we we normally just take long-term or, you know, season season-long interns, although we occasionally take shorter ones, but we, we just consider people as they come. It doesn't have to be a specific background. Very cool. Well, if anybody out there is hoping to make cheese, you couldn't hope for a better teacher that um, is in, in a more beautiful farm. It's a really, Meadow Creek is a really special place. Um, well, thank you so much, Helen, for taking the time to be on the show, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Seattle this week for the uh, American Cheese Society. Oh, we're getting ready. We're gearing up. We'll be there. <laughs> so, and as always, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Ann. All right. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you next time on Cutting okay. the Curd. Thank you. And see. All the lovely things you are to me. Wistful little star